All right, are the kids excused? And our Bibles are open to the book of Ezra. Um, before we read, I'm going to teach all of chapter 3. And uh, I have titled this teaching this morning, The Chief End of Man. And for some of you who are familiar with where that statement comes from, that was a spoiler alert. You already know the point of what I'm going to say this morning. And if you're not familiar with it, you will be soon. Um, but before we read Ezra chapter 3, as we, as we begin here, I just want to remind us, going all the way back to the first week, there was three characters that were introduced when we, when we um, looked at the summary of both Ezra and Nehemiah, which are two books that were historically understood and read as one book, but have been separated sometime, you know, centuries later. I think it was around Origins time uh, where it was separated into two. So as we teach through them, we introduced three different characters, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Those three men, and there's, there's these three kind of similar character arcs that take place. But I just want to remind you is a bit of that 30,000 foot view, taking that big step back to help us keep into perspective these, uh, each of these characters and the narratives that they produce, because it was a bit of a recapitulation, if you recall. We see the same thing where God calls someone, Pharaoh, so God impresses upon Pharaoh to sovereignly act in a certain way towards God's people. He raises or calls an individual or individuals to set about a work to labor, who call the people to a labor of faithfulness. The people do not follow through all the way. And I wouldn't call it a failure, but they definitely don't accomplish everything that they set out to do. And we see this retold in three different stories. So chapters one through six of Ezra is Zerubbabel. This is the individual, and we haven't said much about him. We're more so, we've been looking to see Jesus throughout these Old Testament books and to understand both the context of the historical context of Ezra, but also the present day new covenant, new, new creation context for us as well. So Zerubbabel sets about the work of the Lord, and essentially what we have is the restoration of three things. Zerubbabel sets out to restore to the people of God their worship, the restoration of the worship of the people of God. And then we'll see Ezra in chapter 7 through 10, years later, is going to come onto the scene, and he sets about the work of restoring the law to the people of God. And that is Ezra chapter 7 through 10. And then Nehemiah, we're familiar with his story, but he sets about to restore the broken city walls of the people of God and this picture of the, re, of the community and the building of the community. But I just, again, to point out to us and to keep in our minds what I said a moment ago, that in each of these narratives, in each of these character arcs, what we see in the people of God is an inability to actually complete the work. And importantly, as we saw in that week one, it sets the stage for the Messiah who would not fail, who would complete, and who would inaugurate the, uh, what will be the perfected reality of those, three, of those three things. And so that's just a helpful thing to have in our hearts because what it's going to do is, is it, it, it has a purpose of pointing us towards Jesus Christ who will establish the new covenant worship who has established, if you will, the new covenant law on the hearts of men. And of course, as we know, the new covenant city. So it's good. Just keep that before you as we go along because it's easy to get caught up in just the minutia from week to week. So let's read Ezra chapter three. I'm going to read the entire thing this morning. All right. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man 
to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and they offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, the Tyrians, Tyrians, I'm lost, I'm Tyrian, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord, and Joshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to the praise, to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Fascinating, isn't it? What a really intriguing just kind of telling of the story. I will say this morning, there's much in there that can be taught and should be considered and studied. So as a bit of an encouragement to you all to be diligent in your own personal study, to read and to dig deeper, because in the 30 to 45 minutes that I take on a Sunday morning, we're just going to glance and cover probably one thing in this really beautiful passage of, of Ezra. So on the surface of what we just read, the task of the people obviously is to rebuild both the altar of God and the temple of God. There's two different endeavors that are, that are being taken up here by the people. But even though on the surface it just seems like these two tasks, there's actually something much more significant at the heart of what it is for the people of Israel and for God himself. Because the two objects 
represented a timeless and vital aspect of God's chosen people. You guys know what it is. Do you know what they represent, those two things? The altar and the temple represent the restoration of genuine and right worship to God, to Yahweh. And so this morning, as I set out to teach, I just ask, and my aim is going to be the same, asking the Lord to stir within our hearts a faith for, a joy in, a a renewed understanding for our worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. True and genuine worship. As I was thinking about it, isn't it interesting that, that Worship is so much more than just singing a few songs on a Sunday morning. As I began just to consider what worship is, I began to, my starting point was what we often in Western evangelicalism, particularly in, in the charismatic portion, it's so fascinating to me that we have reduced what God has designed and intended to be an entire posture and aim and purpose of life. In every single moment, we've reduced it to 30 minutes of four or five songs being sung on a Sunday. And while we don't always approach it that way, I'm not saying that that's how we all see it. I'm just saying, by and large, when I say, we're going to worship together on Wednesday night, most people are going to think, oh, I'm going to show up and you're going to sing some songs and we'll sing together. But what I'm wanting to do this morning, church, is just to ask the Holy Spirit, to reinvigorate our understanding of what worship is in light of the profound importance that I want to present this morning that it holds in the life of the believer. It is so much more than sometimes what we have limited it to, right? It's not a once a week thing. It is an every moment thing of life. And and how crazy does that sound against the backdrop of this Old Testament? And we haven't gone back all the way to the institution of worship of God, of God in Exodus and in Deuteronomy and, and through Leviticus and Numbers. We, we, didn't, we haven't seen that, but we know it. The intent that God has set forth for his people and worship, the, the ceremony, right? The, the significance, the reverence the obedience of the people, the wonder and the awe that would come upon the people, the importance that worship was for them. And maybe we have forgotten it, which is what I want to cover this morning. And of course, the necessity, the necessity, church. And that's something I think we don't often think of. Worship for us is a privilege in the new covenant age of grace. But in the old covenant, worship was a necessity. I was thinking too, certainly God has not intended in, the, in this new age of grace for the pendulum to have swung so far. May we find just again, to use that overly used terminology, the, the radical center of worship in our lives. And there is a difference between Old Testament and New Testament worship. And I'm going to cover a little bit of that this morning. But again, is it possible that in our own freedom that we have somehow lost sight of the glory, that we've somehow lost the, the sense of awe. And we, we, we talked about this when we talked about just within the Reformation and in Protestantism, the, the uh, iconography 
and the iconoclasm that took place and, and the loss of some of those things that were meant to bring the worshiper to a place of reverence. And oh, how I wish we had a building that, that caused us that. Just some portion when we walk in, the acoustics in a grand cathedral style, all positioned in a way where the Lord's table was front and center of the entire worship experience. There's beautiful things in the historical church that we've lost now in the, <laughs> we're thankful for the space, but in the business complex, you know, we've lost a little bit of that. And I think that has, I don't say necessarily that that's what has caused it, but it's all part and parcel of the same thing, I believe. So what is worship? This, as, a, as a helpful reminder, what is worship? Christian worship, I just want to say, is, is not just one simple act. It's not just singing songs, right? It's not one simple act. Worship is an entire set of truths and, listen, divine realities. Divine realities. In other words, not man-made realities, but realities that are created and designed by God. Divine realities that coalesce together to form one greater reality. So it's a series of, of truths and purposes in the heart of God, of, of separate realities that he brings all together to create this aspect of worship. And listen, first and foremost, church, this is so very important. It begins with a right view of God. Worship begins with a correct view of God. It must, because as I'm going to say in a moment, we'll see anything short of that isn't true in genuine worship. It's understanding who he is, his character as revealed to us of what can be known of him with, through scripture and other writings of those who have gone before us. It's understanding who he is, and it's understanding how God acts. In other words, what is the outworking of his character and his nature? And what are his purposes here on the earth? within his creation, and how does he think about and how does he relate to his creation and his people? All of those are part of our worship and they form the basis by which we worship by. See, Israel knew this because God was very clear to them who he was and who they were to be in light of who he was. Brothers and sisters, we have the same revelation. It is very clear who God is and who we are to be in, in response to who he is. We have to do the right amount of diligent work to uncover what that is by the spirit of God. So Israel knew this. Even those who were born into exile had a view of God that they understood the necessity for the rebuilding of the temple. Because as I said a couple of weeks ago, some of who returned back to Jerusalem, they were born in exile. Think about this for a moment. Those born in exile have never worshiped God according to the law of Moses. Not once. They've only heard. They've only been taught. It's been, it's been passed down and handed down the ways of the worship of the people of God. But think about it for a moment. So here's 42 some odd thousand people that are returned to Jerusalem to rebuild a temple that they had never seen, to worship God in a way that they had never experienced before. That's absolutely fascinating. And what was it that allowed them 
to return? What was it that caused them to return? What was it that, was, that inspired them to be about the work of the Lord? It was a view of who God was, an understanding of how he was supposed to be worshipped. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, there's a very famous quote that A.W. Tozer is known for writing, and he says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Wonderful quote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Similarly, church, I would say this, what we think about God is the most important thing that shapes our worship. What we think about God is the most important thing that shapes our worship. In other words, if, if God in our minds and our hearts is indifferent, or if he's angry, or if he's distant, if this is a view that we have of God, how will that not affect how we worship him? It has to. It's the lens by which we approach our worship. So a right understanding of God is vital to true and genuine worship of God's people. So it begins with a correct view. And then secondly, from this beginning point comes our correlating response. The view of God results in an action on our part. And it isn't just singing while it is part of that. Because the act of singing and worship is a wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not minimizing it. I'm only saying our worship has become a bit thin in light, church. Our response to who God is results in obedience. It results in submission. It results in reverence, in fidelity, in exaltation, in adoration, and on and on and on a nation. Put the I-O-N at the end of it. That's what worship is. This is what it means to worship, church. When we see, when we come into this room to be together, and I love the statement that it says there that the people gathered as one man. I read, boy, that struck me when I first read it. If that does not speak of the intent of the people of God to be about of one accord, the same work, the same heart, the same fervency to worship the Lord Jesus Christ rightly. When we come in, it's the same thing. Brothers and sisters, we come in as one man. Whether you are visiting or whether you've been here for 40 years, it's no different. Our purpose is one thing, to worship the Lord in the revelation of who he is. Oh God, may you reveal yourself to us more. More, Lord Jesus, more. Each part, this reverence, this adoration, the submission, each of those things are a proper Christian response when we've seen God rightly. This is what it means to worship, church. Worship is the highest and most fulfilling act that a human being is capable of. Think about that for a moment. And some of you are really stinking smart. But as smart as you are, and as skilled as you are in certain things, you have never been created more skilled for a certain purpose than to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our ultimate ability as created beings, 
That's why we were created, to worship God. And again, what's our view of worship? Because some of us have terrible voices, right? Some do, but it isn't just about singing. Thank God. Some of us can't play it. Uh, this is mean. I don't, because I guess I can sing a little bit, huh? I was saying us as a bit of solidarity, but seem more mean-spirited. You get the point, though, is what I was trying to say. Thank you. To commune with God, to commune with God, which is what we're doing in worship, to commune with him is, in fact, what we were created for. And as I said, I've titled this morning's teaching, The Chief End of Man, and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I can never seem to get beyond question one in any of my preaches. (laughs) But question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this, what is the chief end of man? Do you guys remember the answer to it? Have you guys been catechized rightly? If you know it, say it. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Question number one of the faith. Question number one that those who have gone before us have determined is the most significant and vital basis by which the Christian life is then formed and understood is this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is our purpose, brothers and sisters. And see, for the people of Israel, this is precisely what was at stake. Their ability to worship God in the totality of who he is, what he had done for them, and what he promised to do for them. They knew this. They saw it, and they set out for the work. And so I want to just highlight two things as it pertains to genuine worship that are significant in chapter 3. And as I said, it might not do justice to all of chapter 3, particularly the end of chapter 3 and the temple rebuilding. Maybe we'll get to that, I don't know. But I want to just point out two things this morning in what I have to say. There's two significant truths that the writer highlights here in chapter 3. And I want to say this, they are absolutely still applicable and significant and important and relevant as ever to us today as we endeavor to elevate our worship of God, to elevate our understanding and habit of worshiping God. Church, listen to me for a moment, if you haven't been already. The glorification of God, to glorify God, his glorification or the worship of God, it results in the enjoyment of God. Have you ever experienced that before? Yes. To worship God is to enjoy God. You can't enjoy something that you don't add worth to. By its very definition, unenjoyment is something that we don't desire, put perceived, or there's no perceived value within. And there's this level of, of commensurate relationship between how much we worship and how much we enjoy. And I, God in his grace and in his kindness and, in, and just like his showing to us such a beautiful picture of his love towards us makes it as such that the more we know, the more we worship. And the more we worship, the more we enjoy. And the more we enjoy, the more we worship, right? And it just goes on and on and on and on, the snowball effect. 
And so I believe that today God is calling us for a fresh faith to pursue these things with fervency in our own hearts. And so the two things are this that we see in Ezra chapter 3. First, we're shown the priority that worship had for the people of God. And the second thing that we see is the importance of the purity of their worship. The priority and the purity. As to the first, I've already been speaking a little bit about it already, but just notice for a moment in verse one, which again, I've actually already pointed out when it says this, actually it's verse two, isn't it? No, it's verse one, that the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. So when we begin here at chapter three, it says when the seventh month came, it's almost like we're reading that it's been now years that have passed and the people of Israel have there and they're settled. Well, it's actually not necessarily true. And while I can't say with 100% certainty, it's widely agreed actually that when we consider the words here of the seventh month, it's referring to the Jewish calendar. So it would be what is the Jewish calendar's seventh month. And if you know anything about the Jewish calendar, the seventh month is of great importance to the Jews. And so do you think it was coincidence that God in his sovereign plan had returned them to Jerusalem to be about this work just in time for the seventh month of worship? God's a a bit ironic, isn't he, at times? So the seventh month actually would then be, in the Jewish calendar, just weeks. Literally weeks. 42,000 people have arrived back, and now weeks. And we see just prior at the end of chapter 2, it says, some settled in Jerusalem, but some went into their towns. And now here we are weeks later, later that they're being called back to Jerusalem. Again, I'm speaking on the priority of worship, church. Still likely no homes have been built. Still likely no serious work has been taken up, I would imagine. No real sense of being rooted and grounded again back in Jerusalem. And the people are being called to worship. Why is that? Because God was establishing clearly to his people that the right worship of him was the highest priority. That's what God is showing to us, that the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ is of the highest priority to him. Before your work, before your jobs, before your families, before all of these wonderful things in our life, it is the worship of him that he desires the most from us. Also notice too in verse four, the strict adherence to the offerings and to the feasts indicated, again, Here's a people, and we can assume perhaps by the end of chapter 3 where it says that, that the, the amount of, of weeping and the amount of praise were indistinguishable. So we can maybe just surmise that it's like a 50-50 ratio or some really loud vocal people, let's, we'll call it 70-30, who have never worshipped before, who have never understood. And you've got the other 30% who have. And so, but yet there is an absolute intent on adhering to all of the sacrifices, and it says morning and evening and daily and monthly, everything was adhered to perfectly. And it says this, as it was written and as each day required. They didn't miss a beat. Not a beat. This tells us something, church. Not only was it their joy as a people to worship the Lord, not only was it necessary for them in their own enjoyment of Yahweh to rebuild the altar and to rebuild the temple. 
But within the old covenant, worship of the Lord Jesus, worship of Yahweh was necessary. It wasn't just enjoyable while it was. It was necessary for them. It was necessary for their righteousness, for their peace with God, and for his nearness with them. Proper worship had to take place. This chapter in particular for me caused just such an acute awareness of the necessity of all the events that had taken place. And you, were right, you might remember when I went through the very first week and I just introduced the history of Israel as a backdrop to these two books and everything that they went through. And as I read this, this last week, I was so struck by how necessary all of those things were going all the way back to the very beginning, I guess you could say. But from Abraham to Israel, to captivity in Egypt, to freedom, and on and on and on. And now the Lord has led them to this very moment because without their return from exile, there would be no temple. And if there's no temple, then there's no altar, right? And if there's no altar, church, then there's no what? There's no atonement. There's nothing to make atonement for the sins of the people. 50 plus years, the Lord had prophesied to the people of Israel that it would be 70 and in his grace, he cut it short and it was 50 some odd years that they spent, spent in exile. And for hundreds of years prior to that, think of the significance of worship for them to be in right standing of God with God. And imagine the, just the broken st- awareness that they had of the relationship with Jesus the relationship with God, how aware they were for 50 years never to be able to atone for the sins that they had made. It was necessary for them. Not only had they not experienced the glory of the temple, nor the divine presence of God throughout their exile, they hadn't experienced the blessing of atonement and forgiveness that comes on the other side of reconciliation. Could you imagine if we lived in that state today? I can't imagine living in the old covenant. All of the the rules and the requirements, let alone not being able to fulfill those requirements. You think you feel guilty sometimes. Imagine the guilt that they were so acutely aware of. What's more, the altar must be built to ensure that the longing and the promise of the Messiah would remain in view of God's people. It was necessary, not just for their atonement, but for what would be. All that was prophesied of what the coming Messiah would do as it pertains to their cleanliness and their righteousness. And I was thinking about this too, as it pertains to the altar, the magnitude of the offerings that would be made. Could you imagine if this was the first time that you were worshiping God? The magnitude of the blood, the gallons upon gallons that were poured out upon the altar? Your kids would be horrified. Some might find it pretty cool. I mean, could you imagine that? Thousands upon thousands. I've often... Tried to picture what the altar, I mean, we have these, we have a pretty good idea just based off of what the Lord prescribed it to be built and to look like. But when we consider the blood-stained altar, 
the magnitude of the blood that was poured out. Listen, church, it spoke, it had to be poured out that way because it spoke so loudly of the magnitude of the sin that had to be atoned for. Not only were they aware of their sin, but they were aware already as a precursor of the grace of God. They were aware of the grace that would be theirs because of the atonement, of the reconciliation. I mean, this, is all, this is all in the understanding of the priority that it held for them. It, this wasn't just like a, a nostalgic thing, like let's go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And they took Jerry Seinfeld with them apparently. <laughs> what is up with this temple? It wasn't just nostalgic, it was necessary. Is it necessary for us, church? Can I just ask you that this morning? In your own heart, is right worship of God necessary? Do you value it as such? Do you pursue it as such? Is it your highest call, greatest aim, and greatest joy in your life? I mean, at times, of course it's not. Because we are who we are, right? And that's okay. But this, again, this is just, let's elevate it. And this isn't just a Sunday. I'm not even saying like it's all about Sunday. Sunday is the one man. Sunday's important. But it's moment by moment. The reverence, the obedience, the submission, the humility, the praise, the exaltation, the glorification of Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what we've been created for. May it be the greatest priority in our hearts. I was thinking about this too, just not to go back on all like the blood and stuff. Because the point was made that the magnitude of the blood was a picture of the magnitude of the atonement that was necessary. But what also a picture that was, church, for the magnitude of Christ Jesus' sacrifice. Think about it for a moment. Lord Jesus, may we have in right view right now the magnitude of your sacrifice on the cross. You know that they say, that depending on how you measure a cubit, that the altar was anywhere from 15 feet to 20 feet tall. There was a ramp that went up it just to load the stuff up and down. And it was anywhere from... 20 to 40 square feet. That's big. Whole stinking goats, whole bulls are going on that thing. To just talk about the size, the, the, the sheer magnitude of Christ's sacrifice. The blood of his covenant, which he says was poured out for the many, for the forgiveness of sins. And what does the writer of Hebrew tell us, sin which the blood of bulls and goats could never, ever atone for. Brothers and sisters, Christ Jesus has done that for us. Do we live with that in view? I mean, I know we all know this, but do we live with it in view regularly, holding it out before us? What he has done, think about it now, what he's done for you. Sometimes our own sin is, is so much for us to carry we, we can't handle it when we stop and we think about with such regret often things that we've done, right? But it's not greater than anything that Christ did for us. There is nothing that you have done nor will do that he has not already made 
accommodation for in his atoning work of the cross. Praise God. Praise God. So, with that in mind, who has more reason to worship than us? On this side of the cross, as much as they were intent on worshiping, how much more should we be intent on worshiping God with all that we have and all that we are? Amen? And then secondly, as to the purity of worship, I want to share with you a quote. There's a theologian by the name of Derek Thomas, and I read it this week. He says this, worship can truly be offered to God only when it is in accord with what God has written in the scriptures. Anything else is an innovation of man. And I started to assess what is our worship like? And I'm not saying that, you know, like, this is an innovation of man, get rid of the cool little lights. That's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about the the practices of worship, the Lord's table, the observance of the sacraments, baptism, Christ-centered preaching, etc. What a sobering statement that is, though. That anything other than what God has specified is nothing more than man's fleshly efforts and man's devices. To this point, there's, there's an interesting statement that you might have caught as I read through chapter three. At first pass, it might have left you wondering like it did me what they meant by it. It says this in verse three of chapter three, that they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. What an interesting statement that kind of leaves us wondering, what is it that they're trying to communicate here? While we don't know exactly for certain Many see this statement as an attestation of Israel's concern for worshiping God in a manner that he had not specified. So again, think about for a moment, we've got exilic returnees coming back to those who had not been taken into exile, but yet remained. They too had not worshiped God rightly. And it's very well possible that they had adopted a bit of a syncretic worship. You know what I mean by syncretism, which is we bring in a little bit and we pepper some of this and we pepper some of that. And they might've adopted some of the worship practices of the people of the land as they remain for those 50 years. And it's even thought that statement in its place that maybe they had even, this, this is just thoughts, but maybe they had, they had even endeavored to worship God, Yahweh, by erecting an altar not as God prescribed. And we know that God is very, very concerned with doing things as he has prescribed it, right? And so here's this thought of of offerings being given, sacrifices being made, people attempting to worship Yahweh in a way that was consistent, but yet was really unpure in the eyes of God. And as Derek Thomas says, anything that is not of God is of the flesh. And we know, and, th- and it's God's mercy that it is such, church. It's not unfairness on God's part that he doesn't accept the works of man because what? Thank God he doesn't accept our works, lest our salvation be by our works. So just as our salvation is by the grace and all of God's mercy alone, so is our worship the same. It must be the same. And so this is the thought that I'm going to pull from this this morning to make the point of the purity of the worship. And so Israel comes back and there's conflict because no, the altar must not go here. It goes here and it's such and such and such and such. 
And it's made of this wood. And as we saw it in the middle there, as they're in, beginning to, do the, to prepare for the temple, they have to send away for the wood because the wood isn't in Jerusalem. And it's just like Solomon did. Solomon sends out a payment of, of grain and that which was in the storehouses to build the first temple. And so they do the same. They send out to the land of Joppa for trees to be brought to them by the sea. Because it had to be in such a way that it was true and genuine worship. Sorry, I lost my place. I just lost my train of thought. Brothers and sisters, God is not worshipped through social justice initiatives. Just hear me for a moment. He's not worshipped in social justice initiatives, which we see rampant throughout the church. He's not worshipped in cultural wokeness. He's also not worshipped in conservative politics. He's not worshipped in constitutional justice. Some of these things aren't bad. Some of them are pursuits of holiness. But my point is just to say, that's not how God has designed us to worship. That's not the worship that God desires. And the church is at risk of worshiping wrongly because it makes secondary matters primary matters and focal points and lenses by which we worship God. The church's purpose, along with each individual's purpose for existence, as I have already said, is to worship God without attempting to add anything to it. No amount of our methods or our ways could be or should be acceptable worship to God. Right worship to God only comes when man's efforts are, apart from our obedience, not present at all. Right worship is when apart from our obedience, our efforts are not existent. It's who God is and we respond accordingly. And as I said, it was a picture of Christ Jesus' atoning work that came in spite of and apart from any work that any of us could do or bring. See, the, pur the purity of our, wor our worship church, it means everything. And it should mean everything to us and to God as well. No ounce of our schemes, no ounce of our devices, no, no ounce of our efforts. And you know what, do you, know, you understand what I mean when I say efforts? I don't, I mean, because this is an effort and this is pleasing to God. But I'm saying our, our concepts of what worship should be, our imposition of preference, our imposition of certain things that are earthly things upon God. Well, God needs to be worshiped in this way. No, no, no. God needs to be worshipped in this way. It's a top-down way, right? What does he say? How do we respond? So let me just quickly say, in recognition that our teachers are laboring well for our kids, I, I want to just touch on the Gospel of John very quickly, and I'm going to do it in just a few minutes. Would you please turn to John chapter 4? Because there is a new way, church, that God has specified. And this is the application for us as new creation, as new covenant believers. 
This is what God has designed now because of Christ Jesus. The Gospel of John chapter 4, and you know the story well. This is Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman. And let's just pick up at verse 23. Jesus says this to her, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such a people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship, he says it again, in spirit and truth. Jesus here seems to specify what true worship is now like in the new covenant age. Three quick and simple things. The first, he says that it's marked by the spirit, not the spirit, capital S, but it's marked by the spirit, lowercase s. As I said, worship is no longer brought about by the blood of, of, of the spilt blood of goats and bulls and lambs. True worship now, brothers and sisters, is a spiritual matter. It's not an external only conformity. It's a heart issue. It's an inward work of the regenerated heart. Thank God that we have a regenerated heart. It's an inward work of the regenerated heart and not an outward work of the flesh. It's a spiritual work. And then second, it's marked by truth. To know what is genuine worship from a spiritual man or woman, we see it in the focus found in the truth, in the profession of the truth of Christ's atoning sacrifice. In other words, it's truthful if it's about Jesus. Worship is true when it's about what he's done and who he is. For us, for his church. Worship, our worship is rooted in the profession that Christ was and is and forevermore will be the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, who has made propitiation. In other words, the wrath of God satisfied. Turned away the anger of God by the blood of Jesus Christ now and for all time. Does that not cause you to worship? We are no longer objects of wrath. We are objects of mercy. We are the righteousness of Christ. We are pleasing to God. He looks at us and he takes delight in us. Do you feel as though you are the delight of God? You should. That's what his cross has told you. In addition, the truth of our worship, it revels in the resurrection of the the resurrected Christ whose atonement was once and for all time, who as Hebrews says, is now the anchor and the hope that goes inside the veil. And I love that picture because the veil was the separation between the, the presence of God and mankind in his creation. And now it says that Christ Jesus' sacrifice for all time is just fixed. And I, I don't know, like, I always have this picture of this, like, anchor that's just, you know, boom, in the, in the foundation of the Holy of Holies. And, man, it is set there, and it's not going anywhere. That's the hope that we have. That's the truth, brothers and sisters, that new covenant, new creation Worshippers worship in. And truth that as new creation of Jesus Christ, as the children of the promise, there is what is, as Paul says in Romans 8, there's no condemnation. There is no condemnation. 
Because every time the weight of your sin feels too great, you remember Jesus and the weight of the sin that he took upon himself. And again, the magnitude of the blood that was poured out for you. Every time your sin feels too heavy, brothers and sisters, give it to God. I'm almost done. Stay with me. Lastly, it's marked by grace. New covenant worship is marked by the spirit. It's marked by truth and it's marked by grace. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman that the father is seeking such a people. That the father has sought us, brothers and sisters, is a testament that the grace of God has been extended to us. The seeking of the father results in the extension of grace to us as a people. True worship is not simply human. It's a divine act. One made possible by the father's initiation and the father's seeking. And it continues as such. It continues as a work of grace. To approach God and to worship God rightly, it's spirit empowered as well. That wasn't even a point. That's a freebie. It's a spiritual matter because it's a heart matter. It's a matter of truth because it's all about who he is. And it is a matter of grace because the spirit of God now, if from whom we cry out, what? Father, Abba. Let me share a quote with you as I end. Matthew Henry says this, the gospel erects a spiritual way of, a way of worship. Think about this. I know I've been talking for a while. Stick with it. The gospel erects a spiritual way of worship so that the professors of the gospel are not true in their profession. Do not live up to the gospel light and laws if they do not worship God in spirit and truth. That's how important rightful worship is. This understanding that anything other now than what God has made a way for in the new covenant age of grace is not true worship. Because Jesus is not at the center. Because it's not a hard issue if we're coming out of rote obligation if we're just going through the motions, if Sunday, if church is a place you go, and if Sunday is just a thing that you do, that's not true worship, church. So when we come through the doors next week to worship the Lord Jesus together as one man, may we do so with this reality, with this joy. Let's respond together. And as Kevin led us out this morning as we began, let's expect the response of the Father to his people. Because if nothing delights God more than the worship of his people, surely we can expect his response to that which he delights. Amen? Amen. Would you please stand? I want to just pray for us in this that the Lord would, again, help us to think rightly about worship. And Father, I just want to begin by repenting in my own heart. And perhaps if this is applicable to you, you do the same now. We want to respond. Let's just take a minute and respond to the word of God. Father, we, we want to begin by repentance where we have not worshiped you rightly. Perhaps, Lord, we, we've not worshiped you spiritually as in an inward heart. It's been external. Perhaps, Lord, just... Our immaturity has kept us from, from worshiping you robustly and vibrantly. Or Lord, perhaps we, we've just 
we've seen it as this kind of obligatory action and there's no grace in it, God. It feels like something that we have to do. Lord, this morning we repent of those things. We repent in the error of our ways, in the error of our thinking, Lord. And we receive to you grace now today. And, we, and I ask, Lord, as we finish our time of worshiping together as one man, of being about the work of the Lord of, in one heart and one accord, Lord, that you would so instill within us a fresh faith, Lord, to worship you as you have specified in your scripture. We just say again, Lord, that we don't want anything of the flesh. We want what's true and we want what is genuine. We want what is right. We want what is Christ-exalting. We want that which brings the most glorification unto you, Lord God. Help us today, we ask. And for those, Lord, I pray, perhaps there's even those that are amongst us that are like the exiles who are returning that were born in exile. They've never really known how to worship you in such a way. Lord, by your spirit this morning, would you please open our hearts that we might receive revelation of who you are, of what Christ has done, and the magnitude, the depth, and the breadth of the love of God made manifest in Christ Jesus. The, the depth of the atoning work that was for us, Lord God. We want to hold these things out before us each and every day, each and every moment. Lord, we, we haven't even touched on this this morning, but this necessitates the work of the Spirit in our life that we would then, as Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. And we begin, Lord, just in those efforts by, by reminding ourselves that the mind that is, that is set on the things above is the mind that is set on the things of the Spirit. And so today, Lord, we, we take an a, a eternal perspective in our, in our view. We lift our eyes, Lord, from temporal circumstances to eternal matters, Lord God. Oh, God, you are worthy to be worshipped. You are worthy to be worshiped, Lord God. We love you. Oh, Father. Oh, Father, what a joy it is of your children. And if it's not yet a joy, reveal to us, Lord, who you are, that we might worship you and enjoy you forever. Amen? Amen.